Good afternoon. Uh, I'm David Wolf, president of the Indiana Dental Association, and I'm happy to have a friend of mine, a patient of mine, uh, Adam Hayden, uh, with me today. And uh, Adam, I just thank you so much for agreeing to take time to do this interview. I've um, known Adam for many years. Adam was diagnosed with glioblastoma, and uh, uh, we as, as dentists uh, all have patients that uh, are diagnosed with serious diseases, and uh, I thought it would be helpful uh, for all of us to uh, understand and learn uh, how someone in this situation copes with uh, the issues. And Adam is very open about uh, uh, discussing this, so again, thank you for uh, being here today, Adam. So, uh, to start off with, why don't you just tell us a little bit about glioblastoma and uh, what your symptoms were, how you came to find out that uh, you had the, that disease process. Sure, got it. So, um, you know, glioblastoma is a rare disease um, in terms of diseases in the world, uh, but it happens to be uh, the most uh, frequent um, or the most common type of a brain tumor, a brain cancer. Um, so there are actually 140 types of brain tumors, which seems like a just astounding uh, number. I didn't know that. Um, but glioblastoma is uh, the most common uh, among those. So it is a tough diagnosis. Um, we, you know, perhaps it's come to kind of popular, um, you know, it's been in the spotlight because of uh, Bo Biden um, died from glioblastoma. Uh, Senator John McCain died from glioblastoma. And there's some other folks like that, Ted Kennedy. Um, so I think that that has uh, brought a bit of a spotlight onto GBM or glioblastoma, but still I think is not in many people's consciousness and certainly wasn't uh, in ours uh, leading up to diagnosis. Uh, in fact, at the time of diagnosis, it was the first time I'd actually heard that word. Um, so, you know, I was really healthy on paper. Um, I was 32 years old. Um, the first symptoms presented the day after Christmas in 2014. Uh, our Christmas routine is, is uh, you know, as many families in the world, we have traditions and uh, it begins with brunch at my parents' house, a dinner at Whitney, my wife's, uh, her folks' house. Uh, both of them uh, live in town, not too far from each other. Um, so the blessing to be with family members each Christmas, uh, the curse of the obligation to do it. <laughs> Sometimes you wish they lived a little bit further. Uh, but, you know, after dinner at Whitney's parents' house, we spend the night there, watch Polar Express, and then head home on the 26th. Nice. We've done that um, year after year after year. So it was another Christmas just like that. And uh, we were in a second floor walk-up condo uh, at the time, uh, carried all the presents and the overnight bags and stuff upstairs. And we were just kind of unpacking, the kids were playing, uh, and I got this strange sensation that I had never had before. And it was a little bit of dizziness, a little bit of weakness on the left side of my body. And as that kind of, uh, as that began, uh, it increased in frequency, or I'm sorry, it increased in intensity. Um, and I ended up needing to just sort of collapse to the ground. Um, my left leg was completely uh, paralyzed is a frightening word, but I mean, there was just no strength uh, through my left leg. The dizziness really persisted. Uh, I maintained consciousness the whole time. Um, but certainly was like, well, that was a weird thing to have happen. Um, I think like many people do, uh, I thought, well, listen, I'm a healthy guy. That was a one-off thing. So I didn't think about it, you know? Uh, it was about an eight-minute episode in total. And it's easy to chalk these things up to, oh, the stress of the holidays and, you know, didn't get a good night of sleep, you know, at the in-law's house and stuff. Um, but sure enough, about three months or so later, the calendar year turned over into 2015 in March. Um, I was a grad student uh, at the time, and I was just in a commons area uh, outside one of the buildings. I 
did my grad stuff at IUPUI. Uh, so folks in Indiana are familiar with uh, IUPUI and the downtown campus. Uh, and this happened again in this commons area, and I quickly got myself to a bench and sat down, and the same thing happened. And seven or eight minutes of dizziness and weakness, mm -hmm. uh, but I knew, okay, now uh, we need to take some action. Uh, met with my primary care physician, and we went through kind of some, just, you know, a battery of exams in uh, the exam room. I couldn't get to the bottom of this thing. I thought maybe it's a vertigo, uh, maybe even you have a pinched nerve, or what could it be? So I was referred out to a few specialists, uh, and all the while, while we're trying to troubleshoot this thing, um, that's when these episodes were increasing in frequency, and duration, and intensity. Um, and we just couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, physical therapists, they gave me this stretching uh, routine, uh, but that didn't do any benefit. That was supposed to, you know, if I had poor posture or a pinched nerve that was going to alleviate that, of course, that wasn't what was happening. Um, and over the course of, it was honestly a year of these, of these symptoms that we just couldn't figure out. And by the end of that time, we got all the way into 2016, uh, then it was really debilitating. Um, that I could anticipate these episodes, but I needed to be seated. Uh, through the left side of my body, there was pronounced paralysis. The dizziness was more intense. And the increasing, uh, the, you know, the adaptability, uh, it's, it's impressive uh, what us humans can adapt to. And I just learned to write these things out. Um, but finally, they got to the point where it was like, I can't ride this out anymore. Uh, in fact, I had one of these episodes in the car while driving. And I think that was the signal wow. to me. That was scary. It was frightening. And I was able to, you know, get, get, it was a familiar route. I was driving home from work, in fact, from downtown Indy to our south side home. I knew that there was a gas station coming up. I was able to get into that gas station, uh, but I called my doctor immediately and I said, okay, this, we got to figure this out. Um, it had been a year of troubleshooting and we didn't have an answer. So that led to an MRI. So this MRI revealed this 71 millimeter primary brain tumor. That's about seven centimeters, which is the diameter of a baseball. So a really sizable mass. It was in the part of the brain that affects kind of sensory and motor uh, control for the opposite side of your body. Um, so this weakness uh, and this kind of off-balance dizziness feeling, uh, that was explained by, look at this, we're looking at this scan, and we see that you've got this big tumor. Um, and I think the reality of being a young guy, I was, you know, 32 as I mentioned, and being overall pretty healthy, right. um, is that, you know, there's this old adage uh, in medical school that they say if you hear hooves, infer horses and not zebras. Um, but it just turned out that I was a zebra. Um, that, you know, this kind of brain tumor, this rare brain tumor, that would be the last thing you'd think of, uh, in fact, was the thing uh, for me. Uh, so after surgery, you know, they took that, they removed as much as they could, about 96% of the tumor, which is a really positive prognostic indicator, yeah. which is so, uh, you know, my kudos to the, the, the surgical, the whole medical team and the surgeons. There were two surgeons that were involved. It was an awake brain surgery, which is quite, quite the experience. Uh, but the pathology came back glioblastoma, this, this aggressive brain cancer. Uh, and yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm four and a half years out. Uh, which is a mixture of emotions, of course, uh, gratitude, um, but also the reality that this disease oftentimes will take people's lives in, in half that time or less. So there's also this kind of strange dimension of survivor skill uh, that comes along with this whole experience. But yeah. that's the that's the diagnosis story in a nutshell, I guess. I didn't think about that, but uh, uh, yeah, you probably feel like uh, how how can it affect some people and they're gone quickly and and. Uh, you dodged the bullet. Right, yeah. 
just kind of dumb biological luck, you know, is the reality. <laughs> we can take care of ourselves, but sometimes it's just what genetic mutations you have or don't have. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, for the clinicians that are listening, it's good to uh, pay special attention to be a good listener uh, when you're describing a problem and how these things happen. happen uh, uh, I think it's so often that, you know, we can jump to a conclusion and without getting all the facts, not asking enough questions. And I've just found like going on, on mission trips where you don't have any diagnostic equipment, it forces you to really listen and pay attention to, you know, get the, the symptoms. So uh, uh, I think that's a, a good uh, message to all of us. Um, you, you, uh, I know that you presented to Congress to, to get support for uh, drug research and development. Uh, can you tell us how uh, uh, that came about, what prompted that, and uh, tell us about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think uh, there are phases, right, of, of when you receive a really tough uh, diagnosis. And I think, you know, you have this initial shock, and then it's, you know, and in cancer care especially, you know, chemotherapy uh, is, is toxic, <laughs> you know, and surgery takes time to recover from, and radiation uh, also is, is fatiguing and, and actually could cause late effects long after uh, radiation. So uh, initially it was like, man, just head down and we got to get through this uh, as a family and how are we going to figure this out? I mean, Whitney and I have three young kids. Our youngest was eight months old at the time. Wow. So I think the first several months was just about, um, let's circle the wagons, let's try to get through this as a family. Um, but I think quickly, uh, once you realize like, okay, we're, we're stable, um, it's the now what? What do we do now? Uh, and uh, for me, you know, I think our whole family is, is pretty service-minded. I mean, my dad's a pastor, and in fact, dad's dad is a pastor, um, so there's a bit of a family business there. Uh, Whitney works at our county hospital. She works at Eskenazi. Um, so, I mean, I think our family unit is, is organized around, I think, service uh, to others. And I, I thought, um, good. So I thought, how can I serve? How can I use this, uh, you know, to be useful? My grandmother, she would always say, uh, Adam, you've got to be useful. That was always her <laughs> advice to her grandkids. Um, so I heard grandma, you know, okay, be useful. And so I got involved with National Brain Tumor Society. Uh, this is a nonprofit organization uh, that does all sorts of stuff, funds brain tumor research, raises awareness, um, helps support families, really a great organization. So I began to volunteer with them uh, and they uh, organize an annual advocacy day uh, where you do go to Capitol Hill and uh, they help to set up meetings and you have meetings with members from your kind of state. So you're representing the constituents and you're asking for you know, more medical research funding. Uh, I did that and really enjoyed the experience uh, and I told National Brain Tumor Society, or NBTS, I said, you know, I would love to do more of this stuff. Um, so as they began to organize events in DC, um, I kind of got on the short list of people that would get the call to go and, and be involved in some of those events. So I've, it's been a cool, you know, I mean, I, my, my claim to cancer fame is that at one meeting, I was introduced by Dr. Ned Sharpless, who's the director of the National Cancer Institute. And I thought, man, that's pretty cool to get a, an introduction from, you know, the director of NCI. Yeah. Uh, so that's so feather in my cap. Well, <laughs> yeah. you, you're a great public speaker, so I, I really admire you for, for volunteering and doing that. Uh, you know, I, I think your grandma would be proud of you. You, you are being useful. You're helping Good. others. So that's Good. awesome. Um, 
So tell me a little bit more, knowing that you have a terminal illness, how has that affected your, your family life, your normal routine, um, uh, Whitney and three little kids now? Um, how, do you, how do you talk to your children about this? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I think the, the, there is certainly a, a perspective shift that occurs when you receive a diagnosis like this. And I think there's a, you know, you have a window uh, of kind of this reaction time. And it's like, what, you know, are we going to turn inward uh, or are we going to, you know, kind of look into the world and figure out, you know, how we live this out publicly? Uh, and I think it's an individual decision. But, you know, I was already... Um, you know, we've, you, you know some about my history. I mean, I was a bartender through grad school, so I was used to sort of being out in the public. Uh, and, you know, of course, Facebook and Instagram, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm in my, uh, now I'm 38, but, you know, mid-30s at the time. And so I was already on social media. And so I think part of the diagnosis, part of that whole thing, um, with getting a terminal illness and stuff, uh, I was already public. So it would have been more strange for me to vanish, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so that helped me in the beginning. You know, I mean, I was in the hospital recovering from surgery, uh, tweeting about that experience. <laughs> um, and so I think uh, there was a positive feedback loop that developed that said, you know, wow, Adam, this is a scary thing. Yeah. Uh, and that I think people quickly really respected. Uh, and Whitney, too, wasn't just me, but Whitney, too, was sharing updates. And this idea of kind of talking about this experience in the open, uh, we were uplifted by the community for doing that. So I think that taught us um, that really, considering life and death and facing mortality, these are conversations that people want to have. They just need a little bit of encouragement and nudge and safety to get there. Um, so I think the public persona for Whitney and I has been honest with folks um, to say, hey, this is scary, um, but that we can be, you know, we can, we can treat this uh, in a really real and human way. And we've said we can face fear with familiarity. So that's been one of our kind of guiding principles is that when something gets scary, how do we get familiar with that thing? And it makes it less scary. Um, of course, in the public, that's easier uh, said than done. Uh, it takes skill and practice. And of course, I've made mistakes along the way. But I think inside the home, you know, that's where, um, gosh, three young kids. And, um, you know, we were talking about, um, I mean, I had, so not to, well, I mean, we're, we're speaking with clinicians, so I was going to say not to get graphic, but I think folks are ready to get graphic. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I had, it was a sizable uh, incision to remove a baseball-sized thing. Uh, so it was about 40 surgical staples to close the top of my head. And so as the boys would come and, and visit me in the hospital, I was, I ended up being inpatient for about a month uh, through that process. And so when they'd come and visit me, you know, it's hard to cover up 40 yeah. surgical staples. It had to be scary to the kids. Yeah. So they were aware that something was up with dad. So, you know, I mean, in that way, the, the, the pump was primed a little bit for them to understand, like, okay, that my friend's dads uh, and parents or guardians or whomever, uh, you know, I don't see them in the hospital like this. So they were already curious for information. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we tried to meet them where they were. Uh, you know, I remember talking to Isaac, our oldest, about, you know, hey, what happens when you skin your knee? And he said, oh, you put a Band-Aid on it and it gets better. So we were able to connect those experiences with the top of my head was going to get better. But of course, cancer uh, and glioblastoma for me, you can't cure it. It's always around. So, uh, you know, we began to center our experience in family. And so we talked about grandparents and, you know, we've got like a lot of people, I'm sure, you know, you've got pictures of family all over. And we started to talk about, look, there's, there's a, a grandpa on the wall and that grandpa isn't with us any longer. Mm -hmm. And so we could use that to say, you know, 
daddy may not live to be as old as your grandpa was uh, when he passed away. Um, but we know that we still remember grandpa and we're still going to remember dad. So, I mean, I think using those relatable experiences is how, how we've talked to the kids about it. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I appreciate that you're so open and we'll, we'll talk about this because I think it, it is awkward for most people, you know, when you get that, that diagnosis, when you, you got the big C, when you got cancer, it's just hard for people to even ask or talk or uh, ask you about details. So I, I just, I really appreciate your openness and sharing with us today. Good. Um, all right. Now I, I have to know what keeps you so optimistic, positive, energetic, when so many people with a, a terminal illness would, like you said, turn in, and uh, for you, uh, you just uh, are, are out there in the world, and uh, you, no one would ever know that you have a problem at all. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I think uh, I just I credit so much of this to upbringing and to our social network uh, that's around us. Um, I mean, so I think my dad. Um, you know, dad was in and he was finishing uh, undergrad uh, and in seminary when I come when I came along. So yeah. dad has been a faith leader for as long as I've known him. Um, so 30 some years. Uh, and I think uh, this idea that, you know, part of that is you visit folks who were sick and that you do officiate funerals and mm -hmm. things like that. So it was never foreign to me that folks get sick and get old and die. Uh, I mean, I don't want to and I don't want to pretend that, you know, we had the perfect reaction all the time and that I've always been positive. I mean, there are some dark times along the way. I don't want to sure. cover those up, but I think so much of just seeing dad day in, day out, visit folks and some of the best times of their life, but also some of the, the darkest times of their life gave me perspective growing up. And I think uh, Whitney, my wife, is a seasoned healthcare veteran. She's seen yeah. it all. I mean, in the county hospital setting. Uh, I've joked that if you're not uh, shot, stabbed, or thrown off a motorcycle, it's hard to get sympathy for Whitney. <laughs> so she's been working in the trauma space in her life. But I think all of that has just helped us to understand. Rather than ask, why me? We've been able to ask, well, why not me? This stuff happens to people, and it happened to me. Um, so that's helped kind of the, the mindset around this, not to get too down in our own you know, self-pity. Um, but I think it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's the kids. So it's a really difficult thing to have uh, a serious illness with kids because you know there's an impact there uh, that you can only control so much of. Um, but also, you know, the kids, uh, young kids, they rely on, on Whitney and I um, for all sorts of stuff, you know? Sure. So when they get up in the morning, and somebody's got to get them dressed and put them on the bus. Uh, and I think just that daily, it gives me a reason to get up out of bed. Uh, and I think without the young kids, uh, it would have been easier for me just to say, oh, this is the day I'm just going to stay on my PJs and uh, do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I can see that. Yeah. yeah. So you, you've talked about this some. Uh, is there anything else that you uh, could tell healthcare providers to to make them more comfortable uh, uh, talking to patients with terminal uh, diseases? How you like to be addressed? Uh, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I love you, you highlighted this. Um, a little bit ago, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, it takes close listening uh, and, you know, in the absence of, uh, you know, diagnostic stuff, um, you know, this was William Osler was a medical educator at the turn of the 20th century. And he's William Osler is known for a lot of great kind of quotable things. One of them. Uh, so I'll say two now. But one that I really like is he said, well, a good uh, physician 
treats the disease, but a great physician treats the person with the disease is a great one of his. Uh, another one that I think is exactly what you're saying um, is he says, listen to your patients. They're telling you their diagnosis. Uh, and I think that's just so important to lift up. Um, you know, we can learn a lot about patients through stuff like, you know, radiographic imaging and, uh, you know, these days, genomic stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, we can get a whole portrait of a patient without even talking to them, you know, just by running labs and doing x-rays and stuff. Um, but there's a different relationship when you take time to invest in that conversation. And I think, you know, there's like treating the condition, but then there's healing. And I think all of us need healing. Um, and I think that it's that relationship uh, that, that leads to healing. Um, you know, and you can treat the disease or the condition or the disorder, um, but without that relationship piece, um, you know, there won't be healing there. So that's important, I think, to lift up. Yeah, that's, uh, I, lo I love uh, your answer to that question. My uh, my son is a senior in medical school. I'm going to make sure he watches uh, this as well. So I, I do. I, from the bottom of my heart, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, uh, joining us today on behalf of the members of the Indiana Dental Association. Uh, thank you. Thanks for uh, this interview. And uh, I, I wish you well. And I hope that you have a, a very healthy, happy uh, 2021. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be invited. Um, and it's, I'm just so honored. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's humbling, really, because, uh, you know, I'm just a, I'm a guy in a hoodie. But I'm happy <laughs> that I've been able to, you know, use this to teach others. So thank you for the well, opportunity. That, that's appreciated. Uh, it's, it's a blessing that you can share uh, all this with others and then help others through it. Thank you.